Hello, you're listening to Under the Skin, where I, Russell Brand, ask what's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, of the history we are told. This show is sponsored by me and my Rebirth Tour. I sponsor it, you see. The next couple of shows are sold out, but there's still some tickets available for Grimsby, 10th of July, Richmond, 17th of July, Cambridge, 18th of July, Worthing, 25th of July. Go to russellbrand.com for tickets. Now it's time for Under the Skin. Naomi Klein is an author, social activist and filmmaker known for political analysis and criticism of corporate globalisation. Her books include No Logo, The Shock Doctrine and This Changes Everything, which was a New York Times bestseller. She frequently appears on global and national lists of top influential thinkers, one occasion higher up than me, which was infuriating. And in 2016 was awarded, and probably all occasions, that's the only time I've been on the list, uh, and in 2016 was awarded the Sydney Peace Prize for activism on climate justice. Her new book, which we'll be talking about in some depth, is No Is is not enough and the quote here is this is a look at how we arrived at this surreal political moment how to keep it from getting a lot worse and how if we keep our heads we can flip the script so primarily in this book no is not enough you're talking about trump and what trump epitomizes and what trump is perhaps a symptom of is that something that you can pray see in this new audio form (laughs) I can try. Um, first of all, it's great to be with you. And oh, should I have done some of that? You, you could. You could. Well, I'd really yeah. love you. I think you're a really beautiful person. I think you're a bodhisattva, to use a, bod- a Buddhist term, a person that's helping other people to enlightenment, perhaps at the expense of her own. What do I want to? Say? I hope not. Well, yeah, that's, that's actually I think the price. Like they say that there's people that could go over if they wanted, but they go, no, no, I'll stick around here for a while, try and help other people over. So that's quite a good compliment. I remember with great affection the previous times that we've met. The first time when I was in an, an erratic metropolitan whirlwind of romance with my my future wife, and having just in fact interviewed Donald Trump, primarily motivated then by this curious impulse that I had of like, how is this guy so rich when to me he seems like he's an idiot that's why i couldn't understand and of course i understood that someone had given him his money his father but then but then but meeting him i kept probing him and sort of thinking what is it how have you got this money what's going on and that was before he was president of the you know we didn't know that he was merely a man in the ascent at that point so that seems as good a point as any to launch into your book having complimented you and and my gratitude for you coming here and being on our podcast and the niceties that should be observed well thank you um so look I wanted to just put Trump in some kind of context. This is not looking at the psychology. Um, you know, there's, a, I think, a lot out there just about the sort of pathologizing him as this extreme, extreme individual. And he's certainly an extreme individual, but he's also just a symptom of the culture in so many ways. He is the fulfillment of so many of the most dangerous trends, um, just the worst, the worst of us, really. Mm. And there's this way in which he's so bizarre and so unlike what we're used to from politicians that I think we talk about him as if he's some sort of Martian. You know, what did he do now? Could he really have just tweeted that? I mean, what, a, what like this is this everyone's it describes the state they're in as as shock. But I see it as really 
really, it's more like a cliche. It's a cliched outcome. Like, of course, a culture that fetishizes wealth, that fetishizes celebrity, um, that fetishizes fakeness at at every level. Um, You know, if you wrote a science fiction novel about a world in which the United States elected Donald Trump as their president, and you handed it to your editor, your editor would tell you that it was too cliched an outcome, right? It's too predictable an outcome. And so, Mm. you know, I think Trump is the fulfillment. Yes, I I think you're right. And uh, I was thinking about the theatrical term grotesque. And and a grotesque is merely an exaggeration of the ordinary to make it more identifiable and recognisable. And these sort of traits were always present under the George W. Bush presidency. This sort of galumphing individualism was present and and buccaneer international, uh, like internationalist attitudes. Or not internationalist, I suppose, interventionist. Um, So, yeah, in a way, it's entirely predictable. One of the things I I, I think about, I suppose it's because I have the privilege of a comedic perspective is he's sort of something about him that's com- likable comparatively you know what i feel that it is is that people got od'd on sort of clintonian blairite you know this is new labor and yeah like this kind of charming slick superficial technocratic bureaucratic sort of veneer of pleasantness that masks an indifference and an ignorance to the needs of the majority of people that was disingenuous and untruthful and donald trump may be many things and clearly as your book outlines he is those things but what he also seems to be is authentic in a bizarre way. He's not lying. There's something mad about he someone's... He's lying. But Go he, on. He te- he's telling you the truth about being a liar, you know? So he gets caught lying all the time. Ah. But he's open about the fact that he's a liar and he's corrupt and he does whatever it takes to win. And so you can't catch him out on anything. And I think that's what people mean when they're like, well, at least he's honest. Like, they don't mean he's technically honest. They understand that he lies all the time. Authentic. <laughs> yeah, uh, authentically inauthentic or something like that. Um, but do you but, think, I'm talking in a, in a sense, Naomi, about kind of an energy that if, like, I mean, I don't get too hippy-dippy here, but like when you, like if you're watching Hillary Clinton talk on television, as people ever, uh, people were in the lead up to that election, and then do, you watch Donald Trump talk, there is a, even in the grotesqueness, and evidently the content was irrelevant because if someone gets some of the more outrageous things, the, you know, the, the sexist things, the racist things, if those things are irrelevant, then what is it that's getting traction? What is it that's reaching people? And my idea is that it's authenticity. That it's like, yeah, fuck it. You know, you sort of think, oh, well, this guy's not Hillary Clinton. Where Hillary Clinton, those people don't seem to know how to talk. Like, well, you know, you see them. And like Tim Reeves and May talking after Grenfell, you think this person's almost not a human. They don't they don't know how to go, oh, Jesus, I don't know what we're going to do. Like, whereas Donald Trump, when he says, yeah, I was eating chocolate cake, you sort of think, this is bizarre, but there's something about it that's not what I've been used to for the last 20, 30 years. And I can see how people that are utterly disenfranchised and disillusioned might find it appealing. Well, I think there's also something, you know, Hillary Clinton, Blair, um, you know, these figures are, they are the symbol of the Davos class, like the the, the people up on the mountaintop at the what party. What Davos class? Well, it's the party that not, I mean, you were invited, but most people were not invited to, right? That it's it's the party of this, this sort of um, 
the winners in this mm. in this global economy of a small group of super winners and and huge numbers of of locked out people at the bottom of that mountain. And so I think the Davos summit became this sort of symbol. And this is why this phrase Davos class uh, came a little bit into currency. Right? It's this world where you had the politicians hobnobbing with the CEOs, the billionaires, and then A list celebrities blessing the whole thing. Mm. And um, and and it was it was a world that most people had absolutely no access to, right? And I think there's something about Trump and the uh. the, the way there was a, a strange kind of generosity to his wealth in that he did invite the world in. Like, I mean, most most wealthy people in the world right now, the super rich don't want to flaunt their wealth. Mm. Like they understand, like Bill Gates doesn't want us to see his his many mansions and he yeah, he's doesn't... He's a normal guy in a shirt and in cool trousers. curing malaria. He wants yeah. us to see his altruism, right? Whereas Trump sort of said to the, the world, like, come into my mansion, right? I'm going to turn it into a reality TV show. Like people were invited into his wealth and there's a way in which I think there there is a there was gratitude for that. He, he, um, and I think that that is something of what people mean by authenticity. Although authenticity is such a strange word to use to describe this sort of festival of fakeness that uh-huh. is the Trump family. Yes. Um, but, you know, and I don't think it is a message that could have sold if the alternative was not Hillary Clinton. Yeah, right? I think you're I right mean, about that as well. I think if Bernie had been running uh, against Trump, the absurdity of this, um, you know, this family that chose in their first televised interview to address Americans on a series of golden thrones, right? I mean, you remember that interview that they golden did? Golden thrones. He loves the gold. He is like a, <laughs> some sort of, a, yeah, like an emperor or a sultan. It's interesting, this imagery. The golden, in our country, the image of him with Nigel Farage in a golden elevator, something that became a kind of an emblem. But the, like, but the brazenness seems like an authenticity. How devoid and bereft of hope must we be? How how disillusioned and how despairing must we have been that people in significant numbers, you know, women and people from demographics that you would imagine would feel particularly offended are like, no, 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 we prefer that. We prefer mm-hmm. that. And I think there's a very, very important lesson for the left in that, and I don't see the left learning it. Well, it depends how you define the left, right? I think there is, I think... Fairness and sharing, kindness. Well, I think there, I think there has been has a Thanks. learning. I mean, I, when I look at the Corbyn campaign here, and which I think in some ways is a reaction to Trumpism, yeah. right? I mean, this this completely unfocused group, unslick, un the anti brand, right? Mm. Jeremy Corbyn is. I mean, the, the person who actually started applying the principles of marketing to political parties in a serious way was Tony Blair. I mean, he... Really? Well, I mean, when I remember when I was writing No Logo 20 years ago, Mm. it was shocking that there was this politician who used the word branding to describe a political party. I mean, yeah. the, the, the new labor, new labor. And, and they, they were rebranding the labor party, giving it a new name, a new logo. It was like new Coke. Right. Yeah. And what I wrote in no logo was like that, that Tony Blair's labor party was like a labor scented party. And, and this was shocking in the 1990s that you would sort of apply the techniques used to sell dishwashing liquid, liquid and Coca-Cola to mm. a political party that he was divorcing 
this word labor, which traditionally meant working people, mm. um, yeah. from from it was deracinating it and just turning it into a brand, deracinating, pulling it up from its roots, deracinate. Um, and what I found really moving about about Corbyn's campaign, watching it, you know, online because I wasn't here, and particularly the Ken Loach uh, um, little films, right, was. That he put workers, the workers starred in his campaign, just regular working people. Um, And indeed, public sector workers who have been so steadily vilified over the past 40 years were the stars of his campaign, not him, you know. Mm. And then you'd be hearing from nurses and pediatricians breaking down crying and teachers just talking about the real impacts of austerity. And then you just see the logo, labor. Mm. And it just meant labor like it wasn't it just meant workers it just meant um it, it meant what it originally meant and so it's it sort of felt like well i think people are learning the lessons of trump it, it, they might not be learning it in the u.s yet but i think mm. i feel like here there was a reaction against this this fakery yes. <laughs> whereas in the states you have liberals who think that the solution to trump is getting oprah to run against him huh. i mean seriously or mark zuckerberg get our get it get a liberal billionaire to run against trump and all I will see. be well if the broader context like isn't it like um like when yanis varifakis Varif- come in here when he was in early guys he said like a, i think wolfgang Schauber said that democracy is all right as long as it don't change anything, right? And like when you say that thing about Blair co-opting the mentality of branding, he was doing something that, of course, was extremely smart. But and but in retrospect, as all history is, entirely it's disgusting. That was a that was a real that was a lovely North American reaction to some British coffee oh, no, there. I'm supposed to say, I think it's lovely. That's right. Now know, that's a British reaction. Now I, I not wincing and recoiling in horror. Sorry, I just you're had actually, a sip of. I've some never seen your face do that. Bitter espresso. I'm sorry. It was. You're, it's you're, just I felt I needed to super caffeinate myself to your speak mouth with you. Reached your ears. I shuddered. You, it I was a shudder. Can it I, was can a shudder. Can I tell you a funny story about Please. that? So I, I, as you can tell, I'm North American, and but I, I did live in this country for for one year um, when I was ten years old and had an absolutely terrible time. And, How dare you? Uh, and I, I am. Um, went to. I, we lived in Oxford, and I went to a school that I don't think is, exists anymore called Bishop Kirk. Um, we had that burned down because of your attitude. <laughs> but see, what North American kids do to bond is, it, it, like, the easiest way that you can make friends as a kid in North America is to trash the food, you know, at the school cafeteria or, or at summer camp or whatever it is. That's that's how you, that's one ah, of the ways you, you bond. And so my first day of school... experience of crap food. Yeah. Uh, we, we went to the cafeteria and they they gave us some terrible food. And they, I remember the, the, the pitchers of custard, which was a new phenomenon uh, <laughs> to me, pewter pitchers of custard. And I sat down at the table of my new would-be friends at age, at, I think I was nine at this point, not yet 10. And, and I said, this is disgusting. <laughs> this little girl named Katie Bennett, who, um, who was a vicar's daughter, looked up and said, I think it's lovely. <laughs> and that's when I realized I would have no British friends. Even when and you I had been raised by wolves. Definitely. Yeah. As you criticized our pictures of custard, our <laughs> listeners were off to voting booths and ticking the box marked UKIP in their thousands. I think it's lovely. <laughs> it is have, lovely. I'm going to have a sip of this coffee again. Let's see a nicer reaction. Mm. 
I think it's lovely. Well done, but there was a little bit of a swallow that looked like you were disgusted. Naomi Klein. So, so you were the very much like the little boy in the Emperor's New Clothes. You were the little girl that pointed out that the custard was actually disgusting. Now, I remember reading in... I read No Logo when it was the coolest book to read at the time. And I was still a heroin addict, actually, at that time. So some of the more dense passages were tricky. And I, um, and I, I read it in Cuba while making, as I'm sure I've told you, a chewing gum commercial. So I was felt somewhat uh, conflicted. I was, in, I was reading No Logo, which I'd been reading before I left and was reading it. I was making a chewing gum commercial, the most vacuous of all products, of course, <laughs> unnecessary mimicking of mastication while the world starves. And I was in Cuba where, and like, you know, sort of where there was the experiment of, uh, of socialism was sort of, you know, withering before the eyes, but still something very beautiful and incredible. And you, I suppose, in that book, No Logo. Bringing capitalism to Cuba, personally? I was personally doing my level best. <laughs> I was like an agent, in a sense, trying try to get in there. Come on, guys, give it a go. It's not that bad. Don't mind all this fraternity and solidarity. Get that mural down. Have you tried a delicious Coke? My teeth hurt. Shut up. <laughs> um, like, so, try this Bacardi. You'll love it. No, it is an insult. Shut up. <laughs> like, um, like, you know, it's, like when you talk there about Tony Blair co-opting the language of branding and consumerism and then applying it in a political sphere. Isn't it almost like that the political sphere is an enclave within the uber context of consumerism and capitalism? So, of course, that language is going to have greater efficacy than a sort of a, a particular and topical political language and ideology because we are not living in a political culture. We are living in a consumer culture. So that language, those images, that kind, that kind of discourse is going to be more effective because don't we all agree now that other than sort of like, uh, like you know, the last election in this country is cause for optimism in a sense because you sort of think, oh, people are voting out of kind of kindness and people have had enough and people are sick of the old models. But, you know, ultimately... Things are continuing in the same way, isn't it? Because what we really we live in a consumer culture as opposed to a democratic culture. But I, I just wonder if it isn't cyclical, like whether we've just maxed out on. I mean, this is the way I hope. I hope that Donald Trump is as far as we're going to take this extraordinary. Um, experiment of 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 selling absolutely everything in life, uh, corporatizing every bit of the commons, every bit of public space, and yes, then applying the the then treating politics as if it is a corporation and applying the rules of marketing and branding to politics is a natural extension of that. But I think I think it's changing, and I think there is room for uh, another kind of another kind of political project. I always felt, you know, when I was writing No Logo, that there was something inherently hopeful in the fact that companies like Nike and Starbucks and Apple were using ideas like revolution, community, transcendence mm-hmm. um, to sell consumer products that could never deliver these things, right? Um, and the mm. fact that this started to happen at the height of the neoliberal period, at the, yeah, you know, at at the f- at the fulfillment of the Reagan Thatcher project. I mean, this is when, you know, it, up to the eighties, the model was you know you make a product, uh, uh, and as a corporation, you are in the business of making products uh, and selling those products, and you would then 
slap a logo on it to differentiate it from other products in the marketplace and buy advertisements and tell people about it. But what changed in the 90s is that these companies, and this is what No Logo is about, is what, what the meaning of this flip of, of companies like Nike emerging and saying, well, actually, we're not a shoe company. We're, we're, not a, you know, we're not a trainer company. We are about the idea of transcendence through sports, right? We are about the idea of you being your best of, 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 uh, of any kind uh, of uh, you know being your best, just do it. That's yes. what that's what it was about. Starbucks announced that the meaning of their brand was the third place, not home, not work, but community, a place where we gather. How right? amazing! And this was the period where Apple started using the iconography of you know every revolutionary movement, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, um, you know, a, 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 as and it just said think different, right? And these huge billboards. So I mean, on on the one hand, you can wring your hands and say, oh, they're co-opting all of our ideas, right? But I always found it quite hopeful because with all the best market research, what they were finding was that we wanted more than just trainers and laptops and and lattes. And for capitalism, this is a great recipe because it keeps you shopping. Because as soon as you, um, you know, as soon as you unwrap this new thing that was supposed to bring you community and revolution, you're immediately dissatisfied and have to shop some more. So that's great for an economic uh-huh. system built on growth, but it does mean that that part of ourselves that longs to be part of something bigger than just our atomized existence and shopping is perennially unfulfilled. So. For, for for me as a political animal, I always thought, well, we should thank them. They've done our market research for us. Um, and so it is the role of social movements to rebuild uh, 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 opportunities for people to actually get real community, right? Because it's not a coincidence that these companies started selling these ideas at the very moment when every public institution um, – Every every place where we used to get that sense of belonging, whether it was organized religion, you know, whether it was the public square, all of this is being eroded. So now we're 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 getting it in a sort of temporary state through shopping. Um, but you know, I think we are at a moment where we're starting to see signs that we're actually getting it from rebuilding our sense of community and belonging. I think you're right. Now, if the accompanying component of the advent of capitalism, some grotesque uh, Uber instantiation of which we are currently... You mean tra- Uber the car? The- Either, really, now. They have now those synonyms have dovetailed. So this uh, sort of Uber version uh, we labour beneath. The, 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 uh, the accompanying idea of socialism has possibly been... It, it, I don't think it's been discredited because I don't think you can like, you know, when you look at sort of perhaps British socialism, which is as people famously say is as much to Methodism as Marx, one recognises that there's not the sole, uh, there is not just one epistemology for the idea of fairness and kindness. There is not just one lineage, not just one route. But what I feel is that that battle has been won and a retrospective resurrection of those old ideas will not be fulfilling. But precisely the the phenomena that you speak of when you say 
oh, there's this perennial yearning for belonging now that that can be co-opted by capitalism, can be co-opted by consumerism, that you can attach the idea of I want this new phone to the I am an individual, I am free. You can, that what is the indigenous feeling and how can the indigenous feeling be properly utilised? I don't think by a mechanistic or materialistic idea when we are dealing, I think with metaphysics, when we are dealing in fact with the human spirit, when we are dealing with something even when spoken of in secular terms that is in my view undeniable a spiritual idea. But it's also a scientific idea. I mean, that the reality of interconnection, the reality that we are not atomized individuals, yes. that we are exist within webs of connection yes. with other human beings and with the natural world. We exist in relationships of dependence and yes. interdependence. How do you mean by that? What do you mean by that, Naomi? I mean that we can't exist without clean water. We can't exist without healthy soil. We can't exist without an atmosphere that creates a bubble that is safe for, for, for humanity and that yes. is a very fragile state, right? So we can tell ourselves a narrative, and we talked about this last time, right? I mean, the narrative that we have been telling ourselves since the dawn of the scientific revolution which is a narrative of dominance and apartness from nature that's a in the in the span of human history when do you think that narrative began advent of agriculture or industry did you just say um i said scientific revolution but i mean i think it's an interplay between th- three forces one is judeo christianity and and the scientific revolution and all kinds of new uh, ideas that put humans on a sort of ego trip and imagining that all would be known one day. Mm. And then key technologies that actually seem to make the dream of domination real. And the key technology in all of that was the steam engine, uh, where you can tell yourself a story about how you're going to dominate nature all you want. But until the steam engine, that's a fantasy because you can only sail your ships when the wind blows. You are in a relationship, uh, a dialogue with the natural world. You need wind in order to sail. Um, you can tell yourself a story uh, of, of dominance uh, about your, 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 your factory. But the fact is, before the steam engine, you needed rushing water. You need a water, a water wheel that, that, that needed the water at a certain level, right? So there was a negotiation with the natural world. And I think the past power of the steam engine um, was this idea that now you really are God. Human beings really are God in that you can sail your ships whenever you want. You are the boss of nature. And this is Mm. the way the steam engine Mm. would market it. And and so I think it was, I think you had... Was it? They went, you're God now, up on a train. (laughs) No, like that kind of thing about power and autonomy. The, that you you are now the boss of the natural world, and also more of a boss of your workers, because when your factories are mobile, I mean, you can build them wherever because you have portable energy. You're not mm. you, you don't build it where where the where the water is, um, and then you're kind of captive to your workers. You can uh, you can be a more abusive boss. You can go where where there's a surplus of labor, and you know a, a lot of this. Um, what I'm talking about comes from some terrific research by a Swedish historian named Andreas Malm. Um, so I think I think it was a gradual process where you had the ideas, but the ideas weren't real until you you had the technology. But now we're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. I mean, this is why I believe climate change is a spiritual crisis and a narrative crisis, as well as an ecological crisis, because what the natural world is telling us, you know, when 
asphalt is melting in you know in Cambridge and Arizona this summer, um, and when and Goldman Sachs is buffeted by Superstorm Sandy, is you were, you are not the boss. Every yes. action has a reaction. You are still in dialogue with yes. the natural so world. The time frame is altered. Exactly. So it was not. It, 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 there was there was about two hundred years where we could tell ourselves this narrative of apartness and separateness. But, yes. But this is why I say it's it's not just it's not just a you, spiritual story. And I think the reason why civilizations understood this for so long is because they were living relationships of interdependence with nature. Yes. And a lot of that folk mythology and uh, sort of early pre-monotheistic religion contained within it the ideas that we are rediscovering and indeed rebranding as scientific discoveries. They were already there. They were already present. People talk of mindfulness now. It's like, oh, it turns out that mindfulness does really help heart disease. But if you can just extract it from all this mumbo jumbo about one living consciousness manifesting itself on the material plane or, you know, rather more potent and shorter three letter words. You know, and I think that it's very difficult to introduce a narrative that will supersede the narrative that you articulated in No Logo and have subsequently described the mutations of in, in the, much of your later work without a story that has a more vital, visceral, deeper, ancient, potent human truth about oneness and God and the nature of consciousness and the true nature of interconnectivity. And I think that, that the response to sort of the, this, um, I don't know, zenith or nadir of capitalism has got to be a similarly potent and motivating idea. And your point that the fact that what Apple and Nike have to refer to in order to motivate people to buy unnecessary and in some cases brilliant trainers is, is a reference to oneness gods community profits with a ph you know like that, that that for me is well we have to go back to that source the answer is not you know like for me like and i know next to nothing about marxism but like it was the thing that sort of comes up a lot in this podcast perhaps it's because i keep saying it but when marx talks about alienation when he's talking about the, the spiritual problem of a mechanized and fully industrialized culture that is not controlled by its labour force, that it's a, that in itself is a problem of the spirit, and my personal frustration around the opponents of, you know, sort of like the the, the sort of the lighter side of the neoliberal project is they are unwilling to not backtrack but to embrace the spiritual side of this because like new age stuff sounds to me a bit sort of like oh god not that crap, but like you know, but the to recognise that there is room in this discourse for what is this? What is it that we're fighting for? Why is it? Why does it matter that we're human beings? Why does it matter that human beings and the planet is in trouble? Who cares? How do we avert, uh, avoid nihilism unless it's with some deeper spiritual truth? Well, I mean, I think there's a, there's a, a little bit of a difference in North America than here because of the role of indigenous leadership in progressive movements, um, particularly in the climate movement and in the environmental movement. I mean, every single major battleground uh, against a new mine, against a nuclear waste dump, against a new pipeline is a fight that has indigenous people at the forefront, um, whether and this is true in 
in Canada, where I live. It's true in the United States. Uh, it's true in Australia, New Zealand, um, and and in most parts of the world. Um, it's true in India. Uh, it's true all over Latin America. And you know there are. And so, what's been interesting to me as somebody who you know, I I come more from the economic side of the left. You know, my early writing was all focused on labor uh, and human rights, less less so the environment. But. For the past decade, I've or so, I've you know, been very immersed in in the climate movement, which I think is inter, deeply interconnected with all of those other issues. And I find it really exciting to watch the ways in which settler movements, you know, movements of of, of non indigenous people, are being impacted by exposure to an indigenous worldview that has the oneness that you're describing at its center, right? Um, you know, if you're fighting a pipeline at Standing Rock, you are fighting that pipeline according to the rules of the community there. And they have the rules up, uh, you know, on the side of you know, the various structures in the camp that say you are in ceremony. This is not, we are not protesters, we are protectors. We are water protectors, meaning we are protecting the living systems that protect all of life. And when we march up to the police sign that is an act of ceremony that is not an act of protest right mm-hmm. um and it's um and and it creates you know what one of the interesting conversations i had at standing rock and i have a, um, a chapter about this in the book but i d- d- didn't describe this um conversation there was a uh a guy a, a poet who who i ran into there and he'd been in you know, many different left spaces, protest spaces, and he was just talking about how different this was. And one of the things he said was really different was that he said, every movement that I've been a part of has fetishized youth and this this idea of just sort of all perennially starting over and just kind of hating old people. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas <laughs> this is a culture that respects wisdom, hard-won wisdom of elders, not to say all older people are right, but that there was, it was a deeply intergenerational movement that, that young people were at the forefront, but elders were, um, were, you know, were teachers and, and, and leaders as well. Um, and it's just one of the ways that I think the culture of the left is slowly changing. Yeah, I think that's really important what you just said then. I've not ever heard that before. I was aware of that Dakota pipeline, uh, what a ceremony? They use the word ceremony instead of protest, and and immediately you invite protector instead of protest. Oh, protect instead of protest. That's really good because you're denying the conventional lexicon, which is what frames it as like, oh, you're just protesting against this natural progressive thing that's supposed to be happening, rather than you're protecting. Yeah, you're what's coming supposed from a, to be. A, a place of love. You're coming from a place of love um, for this land, uh, for these living systems that no one can do without. And, um, and, and yes, you, in order to do that, you have to be against something. You have to be against this pipeline that is threatening the only source of drinking water for this community. Um, but it's not driven. It's a, it's a, it's a sort of a constant reminder that it isn't 
hate that is dry. It isn't hatred of, of these oil companies mm, or, or anger. Yeah. Although, although there's anger there, you know, and there is opposition there. Um, but the but it but it's serving this broader love. And 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 this is one of the things that you know people ask me stuff. You know, how do you how do you stay hopeful and all of this in the movement? And I think. The reason why that question comes up so much is because so many people who are in spaces of opposition are kind of pickled in anti, you know, in sp- in that yes. space for understandable reasons, yes. right? But in these sort of frontline environmental battles, they really are so often about communities falling more deeply in love with the their place, you know, with you know maybe it's their coast, um, you know, understanding how dependent they are on the streams and 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 oceans that surround them, uh, mm. and and learning about the interdependence that was always there before, but which mm. we were ignored in our little bubbles. Yes, yes. So the, a contingent of the culture that has become prevalent that we live in that we're from. Dislocation is a dominant idea that you have no integral relationship to your land. You you are man is distinct and superior to environment. It is a resource for us to be used for us to use. Uh, the challenge of that, that again, if these ideas are stitched into ancient cultures, what else is there in there that we are negating? What else in there are we neglecting? Whether it's oh, mindfulness is good for your heart. Or we are one with our environment, or the shame, uh, the uh, negating, marginalising, and humiliation of the shaman by the settler cultures when hunter-gatherer packs were wrangled, coiled, and disempowered, so that cultures could be grounded, so that the earth could be subjugated, and our ability to live between realms, to imagine new societies, new ways of being, like even by rejecting the language. No, we've been drumming. You know, huh? drumming, dancing, these were all banned. Um, were they? For indigenous indigenous drumming. Well, they got dancing. rid of all their ceremony, their music. Language, yeah. You yeah, kill was... the culture. And it's happened again and again. Who did we do it to? The British, basically everyone, didn't we? We did it to the Celts. We were really the ones doing it, actually. The Irish. Don't blame us. We, that was ages ago. We were trying our artists. What about those lovely trains we give to the people of India? They love those trains. Come on, there's a train. What about our culture? Train. <laughs> But look at the train. <laughs> what about Vishnu? Well, if they're everywhere, they'll be on the train. Stop moaning. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's um, I think this is important, Naomi, and I don't know quite how to make such a potent idea palatable to secularized people without making it sound a bit crap and Hessian. <laughs> don't do you? Well, you're trying. I really am trying to bring some of the glory of God back into this. A bit of fury, a bit of righteousness, a bit of power, a bit of archangel energy, some flaming swords. But like, you know, like non-denominational, of course. I mean, I feel like every culture in the world should find what connects them to the land, connects them to the oneness, connects them to one another. And... Also, I feel like to make it bureaucratic and political for a moment, why the hell not? That how is any centralised system, any post-Westphalian claptrap about nations ever going to work when people can't be tied up in a daft flag anymore? It's too big an idea. Served its function. Nationalism's broke. Globalisation of the type that we've had so far hasn't is balderdash and has led to this reemergence, hasn't it? Of um, Trumpkin's pumpkin, as I like to call him. Well, I mean, this is this is. I mean, we have to figure it out in a in a big hurry um, because we, you know, the climate clock is striking midnight. We don't have a lot of time to to have a this wake up call. And it's interesting, you know, when I was writing my previous book, this changes everything. I um, w- 
my, my working title for that book was The Message. Um, oh, hello. <laughs> because Who told you not to do that? Well, the problem is when you when you search on The Message, you just get all this bible stuff, you know? I mean, it's just, it's just really creepy. Um, but... But the idea, the message, the message, and it's a bit sexist. <laughs> but like, but you, the message was going to be here's some what it was going to be. Well, no, the, the message area. is that climate change isn't an issue; it's a message that is speaking to us in the language of floods and fires and mm. storms, and it's telling us to wake up, and it's telling us to evolve, and it's telling us that this system is broken, right? And I think we are in this at this moment of overlapping system failure. Uh, um, I think inequality is is at extraordinarily uh, it just completely untenable levels. I think thousands of people drowning in the Mediterranean is also a message that this is completely untenable. I think Grenfell Tower is a message, and people are. I, I think if there's some hope, maybe it's that people are understanding more and more that these crises are messages of system failure as soon mm. as that fire happened right i mean it was it was understood as being so far beyond this one building but an expression of all of these failed ideas right um uh, and this and this failed worldview and the cruelty at the at the center of it um so people are getting that in an instant now right so i think i think they're they i think that it is possible to have kind of punctuated transformation, these moments where suddenly things start changing very quickly. Um, and, you know, if we look at moments where there has been uh, radical progressive change, it does ha- tend to happen all at once. Does it? When did it? Well, um, you know, in after the in the midst of the Great Depression, um, after World War II, um, after so depression, New Deal, yeah, depression, so, New Deal, Social Security. Um, after the Second World War, public health care, yeah, and yeah, um, and and then the environmental laws, the legal infrastructure protecting endangered species. I mean, this this happened one two like like just a flurry of laws. Don't in the you 70s. think them things were big responses to like everyone's. Fucked, like you know, I mean, like sort of like. I mean, I don't know much about what happened in the Great Depression, but don't you think there was a huge number of people like, like uh oh, we better do something now because there's too many of them. And then after the Second World War, uh oh, we've just killed millions of people. We better do something. So it's like these things are like, isn't that in a way, whilst it's had numerous positive benefits, just a way of power maintaining itself, like a centralized power going. Well, this is the bare minimum we can do. The bare minimum we can do has just got a bit higher for a moment. They're going to need a health service, but after that, we can probably carry on doing what we're doing isn't it what we actually need is a massive deconstruction of power like it isn't it like don't you think that Naomi wouldn't it be good to have some big jazzy global campaign something very visually effective and potent like we are going to destroy Apple like like that kind of thing like we're going to take one big corporation and we are going to as a global movement destroy it probably something that's a bit less popular and brilliant products god I love that phone let's say GM or something where you can say like that thing that's like you know so through globalised attacking of the brand and protesting, like just to demonstrate, like the same way, like you know, to, to demonstrate the potency of mobilization, to take one, you know, one victory, to one symbol, one thing, go right. Why don't we attack that thing? I think that was the plot of a TV show. What was that hacker show? The Russell Brand show. What was it? What? Mr. Robot. Mr. Robot. Yeah. Was it? Yeah. Mr. Robot said, so "What happened? Did it go well for Mr. Robot?" 
Oh, watch the second series of Mr. Robot. Get back to me. Tell me if the revolutionary idea of bringing down one massive blue chip corporation works or not. But is it a good idea, Naomi? I mean, I was interested in your conversation with Giannis about just, you know, where is the power and the being in these rooms filled with supposedly powerful people and the power mm. isn't there, you know? And, and yeah, I think if if people could see a deconstruction of one of these symbols of what he calls the deep state, um, it it could be quite empowering. But I also think it can... I, I think this this spell of powerlessness. I mean, I think this this extreme era of corporate power that 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 um, in most parts of the world is called neoliberalism. I mean, that really is dying. And, is it? And or is it mutating? Do you think? How do? What do? You, what evidence is there of it dying? Well, the, the, it's 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 a zombie ideology because as it advanced, this was. This was a project of ideas that had true believers that would sit down and earnestly tell you that if we privatize, you know, the the rails, energy and water, good things will happen, right? They will work better. They will be cheaper. I mean, there aren't there's nobody left to defend deregulation, privatization, low Mm -hmm. taxes and cuts to social spending. It's it's stumbling around. And I think, you know, accurately described as kind of a zombie ideology, right? Because it has its own momentum. Um, but th- this is why we are in this very dangerous moment, because there is a vacuum of ideas and these very dangerous right wing white supremacist hyper misogynist ideas are surging, represented by the Donald Trumps of the world and the Marine Le Pens. I'm surprised there's enough of them. Is it because we live in bubbles? Who are they all? I never meet them. I never meet people who actually sincerely go, no, he's all right, that Donald Trump. I never meet them. Are they just they don't say it out loud? What's going on? Well, they're they're out there. They're there. They're out there, and they're voting. Well, I, I mean, I think the forces that he's tapping into never went away. He didn't create it, right? Mm. Um, but there, but this vacuum is potent. It's dangerous, but it also is filled with possibilities. And um, and so, and I I, th- I feel like it's this very slow decomposition, this slow death, and the, th- the part of the neoliberal project that is slowest to die is not the policies. I mean, look, I was on you know, BBC this morning and we were talking about the fact that the Tory government here is talking about abolishing tuition fees. Sure. Right? I mean, there's nobody left to defend austerity. Mm. Um, but the, I think the, the, it, it turns out that the, the piece of it that was sturdiest was there is no alternative. Right. Yeah. It's the, oh, the war good. on the imagination is what outlasted the policies themselves. And that's what's starting to lift because you have this whole generation of young people who didn't get the indoctrination that you got and that I got because their whole adult life is post 2008 mm, financial crisis good. when all the true believers fled for the hills. They're still trying to oppose brutal, impose brutal austerity on Greece and Spain. But there's nobody out there saying this is going to be good. <laughs> And don't you dare think anything else, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so they're free. They're much freer than we were. Hmm. They never got they the hard a sell. Indoctrination, the little swine. Well, I resent that, and I think I'll give them a bit of an indoctrinating myself. <laughs> Naomi, what do you mean by the inner Trump? What do you mean by the Trump within? Well, I, I mean, this comes back to you know this idea of treating Trump as totally other. And I, when mm. I when I first started working on this book, I I just happened I was at a literary festival and they 
seated me next to a real Hillary Clinton Democrat. Um, and and I, I explained the book I was working on and, you know, Trump as sort of the, the logical conclusion um, of all of these trends. And she was sort of nodding along. And then I, you know, I said, you know, this is this is these are American trends. And she was like, no, it's not like we're Obama, you know, and she wanted to just completely disavow Trump, you know, that he was it was only red states. It was only the right. It had nothing to do with the broader, the, sorry, the broader culture. Um, so I just don't buy it. I mean, I just see him as just this manifestation of everything that is going wrong in our culture. Just yes. this, fra- our fractured attention spans, the fact that he doesn't read, um, you know, <laughs> just the worst. <laughs> Give it to me in a list, you know, a <laughs> listicle. <laughs> this is what he's, you know, and so he's, he's. See, again, I quite like that. <laughs> Funny. It's common punishment with Dostoevsky. Make it a list. All right, that'll be a good experiment. Well, uh, don't do things that are wrong. Shorter list. Do do things that are wrong. Better. <laughs> um, yeah, that is fascinating. That he is symptomatic. I like that because how could it be otherwise? I mean, like, what, like the uh, people's unwillingness to revise the Obama presidency because, like, now obviously, comparatively, superficially, personally, he seems like some sort of gorgeous Christ. But actually, what he was doing was <laughs> laying the foundations for what happened subsequently. Because you can't have Trump if what happened before it was nice. Oh, and you know, I think well, the part. Part of the part of my argument that is is most uncomfortable for American liberals is is the argument that I don't think we could have Trump without Bill Clinton and Bill Gates. Yeah, know, because the, those two men, more than any others, mm-hmm. fostered this idea that billionaires were going to save us. Right? Yeah, that I like we that. Don't um, philanthropist billionaires. Our country I, was doing it with Richard Branson. Oh yeah, oh, he was going to fix climate change, right? In his spare time, and um, and oh, Bill yeah. Gates is going to fix malaria, and and we don't need you know he ha- Bill Gates now has more power than the World Health Organization. Naomi, I went to this island. Right, did. it was Richard Branson's island. Right, he owned it. It was it was a, in the British Virgin Islands. It was a tax haven, and on it there was a symposium being held that was about how we're going to make the world a better place. And one of the things I said, sort of while on the island, and which expediated my hasty departure, might I add, was, "Well, like, one, this is a tax haven, isn't it? <laughs> like, sort of, why don't we just?" like operate within the even the existing systems would be slightly better than this one and my friend actually said like during the 80s when everything was whoosh crash bang wallop Richard Branson was bombing about in not air balloons and speedboats and everyone's shitting themselves he's <laughs> like going oh no perhaps we should legalise drugs and you know have a sort of a, like a bit more concern for the environment which is again an attempt to rebrand co-opt and appropriate the conscious energies of an awakening people but of course Trump is intimately connected to Obama to Bill Gates to Bill Clinton because it is one interconnected system that's feeding off its now the, the other risk we have is getting like you know wandering into what I call, with love and some affection, the Ike paddock. We're like David Ike. We're like like we're sort of like if you talk too much about sort of interconnected global systems that feed each other, hold each other together, and have operated for a long time, people start to go, "Hang on a second, this is a bit crackpot." So I'm very much value research-based, empirical, secular-sounding data because I think it's vital to be taken seriously. But somehow there has to be a marriage 
between this uh, sort of this academic data-based researched proper academic stuff and the power of interconnection with people the ability to stir viscerally human beings to make them die live love sacrifice which they're not going to do for academia I think you I think you're right I think you're right and and I think we live in a beautiful moment where these words worlds are converging uh, and you know I think that what we're learning from science is intensely beautiful and spiritual. I mean, we talk about it as if it's something dry and remote, um, but this is the study of life. Yes, but because I suppose that that in itself got colonized, the idea of scientific uh, endeavor became sort of mechanized. The way that the, the most research is funded is when, like if you look at the, where the funding comes from, who's. <laughs> Who does the grail serve? Who does the grail serve, Naomi? Now, my producer, well, he's not my producer. He's a free, independent human being who happens to be producing this show, is holding up a bit of paper that says, no, it's, it's, it's a whiteboard. It says, change. Right, come on, Naomi, we can do this together. Yeah. Resistance, Black Lives Matter, recapturing the imagination. And if he's not, imagination isn't recaptured by my religious ranting, I don't know what's wrong with him. And Naomi's Leap Manifesto. Let's cover these topics before you go off to your next urgent Im- a- a- appointment, probably with the mainstream media that will snip your words of wisdom into some... Not, actually. <laughs> meeting with some Black Lives Matter activists about Grenfell Tower. Oh, yeah. Yes. This is my sellout appointment of the day. <laughs> Listen here, you. <laughs> no, it's not true. I was on Andrew Marr this morning. There you go. They're right there. So it's in a way you're getting steadily more authentic. And, you know, I don't know who you're going to talk to after Black Lives Matter. You're going to have to commune with pure consciousness. <laughs> no, I... I, I I think what that is a reference to is a section in the book about the fact that social movements really are recovering the utopian imagination, really dreaming in public, not just being in opposition. And one of the most inspiring examples of, of this is the movement for black lives in, in the in the United States, which came up with this policy platform called the Vision for Black Lives, which is it's a it's a uh, political platform without a political party. Uh, it's it, it came out uh, about through a very participatory grassroots process. Uh, it is the it is a response not only to police violence, though, though it is that uh, it covers everything from uh, abolishing prisons, the war on drugs, restructuring the tax system, reparations for slavery. And it's very, very bold. And this is what we haven't seen from progressive Ooh. movements is coming together and saying, well, what what does the world look like after we win? You a know? vision. A vision. Um, and this is why I say the last piece of the neoliberal project to die is this war on the imagination. And the, the Leap Manifesto is, an, a, a, is a project that I've been involved in in Canada, which was an attempt to do this a, a, a couple years ago. We helped host a meeting of 60 movement organizers from a broad cross-section of movements, indigenous rights, food, justice, climate, labor, uh, um, some some faith organizations coming together and just trying to to, uh, agree on the yes. And and, and what was so interesting about that uh, meeting was just how hard it was, to be honest, you know, that that muscle, we didn't have a muscle memory of agreeing on what we want. We had a memory of coming together to oppose things. We'd come together to say, we don't want this free trade deal. We hate this politician. Huh. We don't want this austerity bill. Um, but we did not have 
experience of like, well, what does it look like when we win? What is what what do we what do we agree on about what the world should look like in the future? And one of the things that we had to do was not rely on some easy nostalgia of just like this idea that everything was great in the 1970s because the indigenous people in the room and the people representing immigrant organizations in the room were just having none of that. Like we're not romanticizing the 70s. So we're going to have to gain our... And and, and left movements have done that for far too long, right? So we're going to have to be inspired by a world we haven't seen yet, that we haven't created yet. Um, So, yeah, if people are interested, they can go to theleap.org. I am interested. uh, I'm a people. And I include the whole manifesto at the at the end of the book, too. It's not long. It's 1,400 words. If people are rewriting it, that some people are using it to run slates of candidates to take over mm, city council. They'll use that slate. And, and it's sort of agenda. not waiting for a politician to come along and figure all of this out. Uh, because I think I we are in a moment where people are maybe a little vulnerable to saviors. <laughs> um, and then they're in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Because let me tell you this. By, by the way, my joke. Remember that your Messiah tour. It's, it's not finished it's, by a long, long shot. It's, it's people like you who I worry about. Russell. <laughs> yes. Yeah, oh no, that's a bit of archive that's going to get pulled up in twenty years. Here's Naomi Klein as Führer Brand. <laughs> get rid of that archive. Yes, 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 Your Royal Highness. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Don't call me that in public. No, sorry. Um, so, um, okay. I think the main things I've learned from this conversation and really, really enjoyed was I like that optimism. I like the idea that we've got the twitching zombie corpse of capitalism lunging about now, lashing about all baffled and confused and bereft of ideas, that there's a necessity for a new vision. And I think that we got from Naomi Klein and what you were saying about like some of those protests with indigenous people is a reimagining of interconnectivity and oneness, which previously has been regarded the terrain of what I noticed you call faith organisations. I think more of them kind of summits where people, diverse people to come up with an uh, an opposing or subsequent vision is uh, real powerful. I like that. And we're going to look at leap.org and learn more to see if people can run that. Watch out for, don't follow leaders, watch your parking meters, watch out for messianic figures. That's one of the other things we've learned as well, is it? Yep. Watch out for people like... <laughs> Don't point. It's rude to point and say you enjoyed that big bucket of custard. Stop complaining, Naomi, about Britain. We've opened our doors to you. We've shown you nothing but love. That's Naomi Klein there. Thank you for being such a, a wonderful guest as always. Thank, Thank you, Russell. It was fun. That show was sponsored by me and my rebirth tour. The next couple of shows, as I've said, are sold out. But if you want to go and see me in Grimo on the 10th of July or Richmond in the 17th of July, Cambridge, 18th of July or Worthing, 25th of July, you can go to russellbrand.com, get tickets. If you like this show, subscribe and review it. If you don't, just, um, well, why are you listening to this bit? This is right at the end. I mean, you must like it. Stop torturing yourself. I love you. Come on, we'll get better.